Just sitting in place, would you join me in prayer, please? Father, we, uh, we thank you for this day and all that you have planned in it. We ask that as a band of brothers that you would bring us together and that we would hear your voice while we are here, not mine, that the message that you send to each of us would be yours, not mine, and that we would leave closer together as men of integrity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. The best candidates to come to a three-day retreat on integrity are men of integrity. That's my experience. And it makes it a lot easier uh, to be here with men of integrity that want to be here. So God bless you. I'm honored. In preparing for today, uh, I learned a lot about integrity. And I believe that when God wants to teach me something, He makes me prepare it for somebody else. And so I think I was uh, the object of the lesson, and I would like to be here to tell you what He taught me. So we're on this journey together. And we're going to find out how we feel about integrity uh, and maybe what our source is and maybe give some underpinnings and girding to what it is that we believe. Our goal uh, is... Did you read that? That was really fast. I... Okay. You're not... okay, so you're not a fast reader. We'll, we'll go back again. Uh, our, goal, our goal this weekend is for each man to leave the retreat having had an encounter with Christ. I hope that perhaps that began last night uh, and that it continues throughout the weekend and, and we take it home with us. Waking up in the morning and having an encounter with Christ is a great way to wake up. That we will have spent time together prayerfully considering the value of our personal integrity and knowing what it would take to protect it. And that should result in building stronger families, a relevant church, and a better society. Because the family is the DNA of culture, and integrity is the DNA of the family. In order to understand what integrity is, I looked it up. I, uh, we take integrity, you know, I do the right thing. How about you? You know, what does that mean? To do the right thing. I mean, as I began thinking about this, I realized I really hadn't thought through integrity as much as I thought I had. And uh, so a definition of integrity is a steadfast adherence to a strict moral or ethical code. That's the world's definition, and I can go along with that. A steadfast adherence to a strict moral or ethical code. The question for us as Christians or as non-Christians is who decides what the ethical code is? Whose moral code? What are we strictly adhering to? Because we live in a society where your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth and every man does what he wants and you don't have the right to tell me that I'm wrong because that's what I believe and so on. So is everyone's integrity integrity? Or is there a strict moral code that we should be adhering to that can be beneficial to all of society. You know, the mafia has a strict moral code. Uh, and they're very, they're, very, they're very serious about it, you know. And you don't want to violate that, that code. Uh, sh- the Sharia law is a strict moral code. Uh, but I don't think there's any candidates here for that as well. So we're going to need to wrestle with who's strict moral code. 
Basically, the question is, says who? That's the question we can take away. Says who on our strict code? And this is not new. Millennials, we hear a lot about, and I, I, I don't fear them at all. I think they're wonderful because uh, I grew up in the 60s. You talk about a lost generation. If we could turn out okay, anybody can turn out okay, all right? And I, I think that this, uh, in, in today's culture, we hear a lot about your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. But, you know, uh, this isn't new. The, uh, the Bible tells us okay there we go in judges 3,000 years ago this was written in those days there was no king in Israel but every man did what was right in his own eyes nothing nothing is new Solomon said nothing is new under the Sun and he, he was right mankind is mankind is mankind is mankind what we need is to begin to return to in in regular circles returning to a moral code that we can agree upon. And so what this did, if you read Judges, is it led to a breakdown in society and in chaos. It wasn't until Israel returned to a moral code that they could agree on that they were organized. And so integrity is determined by your worldview. Let's agree on that. Your worldview is the system by which all of your experiences and decisions are governed and decided. Lots of worldviews. You only have to look, uh, you don't have to look around the world. You can turn on the television. Whether you watch MSNBC or Fox, you'll find that there is a, a, a different worldview on the same issues. And the reason we are in conflict so often, and what gives me comfort, is when I hear somebody I disagree with, I realize they're not a bad person. They have a different worldview than I do. They are putting everything through a prism that I don't agree with. And they are going to come to a different set of conclusions. All people are basically tribal. And we move into tribes that we agree with. I think there's a culture in Texas that you won't find in Los Angeles. I don't have to say I think I can tell you that, okay? And uh, congratulations on yours. We'll talk more about that later. <laughs> so your worldview. We need to determine what our worldview is. I believe that you believe and that we believe that our worldview is a Christian worldview. And that requires a belief in an absolute truth and a personal statement of faith. An absolute truth is offensive to many people. An absolute truth means that your opinion ain't so important. That's, that's what it means. It means that there is an absolute truth. Do we discern the absolute truth every time? We cannot because our brain is not God's brain. God's brain is so much larger. This whole issue of suffering I brought up last night, I believe that God has said, I would love to be able to describe what suffering is all about to you, but your brain cannot, cannot contemplate it. And so I'll model it for you instead just to let you know that I understand what you're going through, a dilemma that you have with suffering, the question of why that keeps us from coming to Christ. I understand that. But there's no way for the way I built you to understand that. I love science as a Christian. 
I think science is God's information given to us at the right time. And we take a lot of credit in science for a discovery. And we think we're brilliant at it. But God already knew it. And He is releasing that information at a rate that we can absorb it. Nuclear weapons 2,000 years ago, we wouldn't be here. I think that science is released at exactly a time when we can just barely tolerate it. Everything that is meant for good is also used in evil. And so we cannot have all knowledge at one time. And so this Christian worldview, we can settle in that we believe that there is an absolute truth, that God, by faith, by our faith, God is in control of an absolute truth. And our job as Christian men is to do our very best to discern what that absolute truth is in every situation and in those we can to live by faith and fall back on His, te his teachings. Your church has a statement of faith. It describes what I believe is absolute truth extremely well. If you haven't seen it, take a look at it. It's on a website, and uh, it's one of the best I've seen. It really gives you at Wayside an explanation of what the church is all about and gives you an opportunity to measure your worldview against it. I suggest that you take a look at it when you can. Really, I, I, I hope you will. And if there is something on there you cannot fathom or agree with, take it to your pastor. Because it's really well thought out. Someone, some group of men spent a lot of time going through and describing what your statement of faith is, what their absolute truth is. And that's a wonderful thing. Now, in order to be men of integrity, we need our own personal statement of faith. And what would be good is if when this is over, or while you are here even, to write down without looking at someone else's statement of faith or the church's, what is it I believe in? Write them down. And it may be, I did this years ago, and as I looked at the list, I realized, oh, wait a minute, that one, this one's more important than that one, and I changed them. But as I was doing that, I realized I put them down in the order that they were actually important to me. My intellect told me to change them, but my heart told me this is what I believe. And I realized I needed work, that some of the things I believed in were worth it, but weren't the most important thing. And so I suggest that's an exercise as men of integrity you can go through. Create your own statement of faith and see what, what other men have on theirs as well, and compare them, and grow together. Your integrity will grow out of your statement of faith. And integrity, I believe, is faith over time. This is a simple way of remembering it. It's faith over time. We can leave here as men of integrity, as men of stronger integrity. You can make a commitment in a moment, to be a man of integrity, and you will be. But your reputation for integrity will be your faith over a period of time that people can look back and say, yes, he's a man of integrity. And it takes time, a decision at a time, a comment at a time, a non-interruption of that integrity at a time. 
working with our families, our children hear everything we say. Tell them I'm not in when the phone rings is not a man of integrity. It's not just the big things, it's the small things as well. It's, being, it's how we speak with our wives. It's how we teach our sons to speak to a woman. That's part of your integrity. It's not just the big things of not taking a bribe at work and being proud about that. It's all of those small one things at a time. We're going to tell your teacher you're sick so we can go away for the weekend. They have a place to put that in their brain, and they keep it there for a long time. It takes faith over time to be a man of integrity. Doing the right choices, doing the right things. That sounds so easy. Just, just do the right thing. That, you know, that's, that's, that sounds easy enough. But it requires courage, real courage, Christian courage that can only come from faith. I don't know where the strength comes. I talked about it last night. Worldly strength has a limit in every case. And that's as good as your integrity is going to be if you don't have an absolute truth rooted in Christ. Because His is limitless. It, there's no top. There's no ceiling. There's no edge. And courage, where does it come from? Our own will? Well, if it comes from your own will... It's not going to last very long. It's going to be challenged constantly. I will be courageous is not enough. Is that sufficient for all that life will bring us? We need for our yes to be yes and no to... to you know, that, that comment, by the way, is out of the Bible. It's used in the world all the time. But it's a biblical principle. Your yes be yes and no be no. It sounds like a simple concept, but it's a really tough thing to do if you really hold yourself to it. And I was, I was thinking about, um, I've been here for a week, and I, I come to Texas often. And you do have a different culture here. And, I, and I'm, I'm not telling this. I, I admire it. As a, well, I can just say that I, I don't find a lot of people with my faith in Hollywood. You know, I just, I'm just surrounded by a whole lot of people that don't carry a gun, okay? <laughs> or, or, even, or even own one, Okay. And yet I have a better chance of being shot in California than here. So I don't know how that, I don't know how that works. But anyway, uh, I, I was, uh, I have a feeling that a handshake with somebody from San Antonio means more than some of the people I know. I, I just, uh, just from hanging out with you guys, not just this weekend, but over years of coming to Texas, I just, just in general. You know, there's, there's bad people everywhere. But I have a feeling, staying in the hill country for a week and, and uh, meeting those people and neighbors, that I have a feeling that a handshake over a fence means a whole lot more than a contract in L.A. sometimes. And, and I, I think that's, that is uh, something of integrity that becomes a culture. Okay, that's what I'm talking about. We develop our, our own culture. I would never make an agreement with someone where in business unless I had a, a contract, a written contract. That attorney went over and over and over and over again looking for where's the hole in this thing. And if you live in a place or have a neighbor that you can shake hands with and forget about it, that is a wonderful and wonderful thing. It really is. And I know that's who we want to be. And it's who we have to be even to those who cheat us. Our yes is yes and no is no. 
So courage, where does our courage come from? Well, courage comes from several C's that I want to talk about. The first is Christ. We have to, we have to trust who, that Christ is who He says He is. And that, that sounds simple, but to a non-believer, this is, this is a giant hurdle. You know, this is a, and there may be somebody here, this is a big hurdle. Is Christ who He said He was? I can tell you this, He's not a good man. He is either the biggest hypocrite that, that there ever was, or, or He's who He said He was. That's the only two options. He either fooled everybody and was a liar, or He was God. That's your only two places to put Christ. He was not a philosopher. He claimed to be the way and the truth and the life, not a way and with truth and would give life. He claimed to be the way, the truth, the life. No wonder they hated him. Who could claim that except two people? A hypocrite worthy of crucifixion or God? Those are the only two people that could claim this claim with a straight face. It was a bodacious claim. You know, what that leads to is once we have found a place to put Christ, it leads to a contentment. Contentment is the source of our integrity. Once you get wrapped in that warm blanket of contentment, then unintegrous things that come into your life are very uncomfortable. If you don't have that warm blanket, then your integrity is, wa- is, is wandering around. You make decisions in all kinds of ways. My yes is yes, except when this happens. But if you're wrapped in a contentment that you find in Christ, that Christ is who He says He is, then that contentment is an insulator to your temptation. It's a strong insulator to your temptation. You know, I, uh, after becoming a Christian, I was at Suzuki, and I was in the motorcycle industry for many years, and then they started a car company and asked me to start it and write a, a business plan for it. I was fortunate it became a Harvard case study, and that really catapulted a career forward. But that's not the point. The point was, it was successful. And if you got a franchise, a million dollars was yours at the end of the year. That's how much the average, average guy was getting if he could get a franchise. And we had thousands and thousands of applications for dozens of openings. A group from Washington, uh, I'm unhappy to say that even represented some congressmen, came to me and wanted to buy the distributorship for the East Coast. And I told the Japanese that that was a bad idea. It had been tried before. Datsun had tried it. Uh, It didn't work. Toyota tried it. It didn't work. I said, if you do that, a death knell for the company. This group wanted this really badly because millions and millions of dollars were at stake. And so... One of them came to me in a private room and told me about an example of generosity that they had with their partners and all they had done for them. And I could see where they were going. They were offering me a bribe. And they said, what's the price? 
we know it's got a price. $5 million? $8 million? This guy's name was Jack. I won't use his last name. And my face just flushed red with anger at being offered this. It, it flushed red. And then I actually looked at him and realized, if I get angry with him, he'll have no idea what I'm talking about. His, his worldview is so far from mine that he won't even know what I'm talking about. And so that's what I told him in a very calm and peaceful way. I said, Jack, your world is so far from mine that you wouldn't even understand my answer. But I don't want anything to do with that. If Osama Suzuki wants to give it to you, that's up to him. But you're not going to get it from me. And he walked away disappointed. And there was a great attack on that company. That's another meeting. But that came, that, that came from them. But I walked away with my integrity. I'm not a wealthy man, but uh, I'm not in prison either. So that's, that's a good thing. <laughs> and, uh, but you know what? I was wrapped in contentment and I found it offensive. Because Christ was my contentment. I had found, after all of the turmoil I described to you last night, I had finally found a place to put it. All that pain and all that suffering that Christ was there to hold me and to put his arm around me and to step out of that contentment was much more terrifying than receiving a gift or graft. And I found it very offensive. And Jesus gives us that kind of contentment which leads to our courage, doesn't it? That's where our courage comes from. At that point, it's not even courage. It's really just falling into the arms of Jesus and saying, I'm more frightened, it, you know, it, it, and it, it's, it's not courage. I'm more frightened not to be in my contentment than I am to be in my contentment. And so Christ is the center of that, and we need to understand that. A lot of these things we can already agree on, but it's good that we enumerate them so that we have a place to put them and in the proper order. So contentment is an insulator to temptation. I have learned the secret of being content in, 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 in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in plenty or want. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Somebody tell me where Paul was when he wrote that. He was in prison. I mean, sitting on a yacht, I could write this, you know, going across. I could, I could write this. I've learned the secret of being content, yeah? And prison where he was, I mean, it, it's, still, it's, it's not a good place anywhere, but it, this isn't an air-conditioned room with a television, okay? This is, this is chained to a floor in a dungeon. And he's writing. He finally gets a piece of paper and a pen, and he writes, I've learned the secret. He realized, I'm content. I'm okay. I have what I need. I have everything, to, everything I have to have. I've learned the secret of being content in every situation. Whether I'm well-fed or hungry, I'm betting at that time he was hungry. In plenty or in want, I'll bet he was in plenty. But he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I will find the strength because I am in my, my contentment and my courage is intact. Next is confidence. Confidence will grow out of that, won't it? That's just a natural next C, isn't it? Confidence is the result of contentment in Christ. And courage provides the ability to act like a man 
of integrity. So being a man of integrity now has a process. I'm a, I'm a process person. I want to know how things work. I ask people at work when they give me an idea. Oh, we have this great idea to do this. How does that work? And then they go away. I don't know how that works. I just thought it was a good idea. You know, well, you go back and tell me how it works. And, and then, then I know we can execute it. Integrity is the same way. We all want to be men of integrity. But how does that work? Where do we, where do we find our rock and our salvation? We find, it, we find it in Christ as Christians. And then we find contentment that he gives us. And that contentment leads us to confidence to step forward and be men of integrity. And that is defined as courage. That's defined as courage. Temptation disturbs our contentment. And courage provides our integrity. Allows us to stand firm. Stand firm in the faith. Be men of courage. Be strong. Do everything in love. Where'd that come from? I was having such a good time there as a guy for a second, you know. I mean, only Jesus would come up with that, right? It was like, that's how you know he's God. It's, it's you know, the Syrians back then would tell you to stand firm, be men of courage, and be strong. But only the Christian faith adds, and do everything in love. Well, make up your mind. What do you, what do you want me? I feel like I'm schizophrenic here, you know. I think that is the beauty of, of Christian integrity. Stand firm in the faith. You can be men of courage, be strong, and do everything in love. Notice, do everything in love is last because men who can do everything in love, real men, are standing firm in the faith. They're men of courage. They're strong men. Is that attractive? Do you have a daughter? Do you think a daughter would find a man like that attractive? Did your wife find a man like that attractive? Because you're here in the room. That's a real man right there. That's a real Christian man. And if you're not a Christian, you'd, this is who they want to be. This, this is who men really in their heart want to be. And there was nobody who was a real man more than Christ. Courage? You know, everybody wanted to be with Christ when he was standing in the boat. We all want to be there with Jesus when he's standing in the boat and preaching to us and we're sitting with our lunch on the shore and listening to the Son of God preach. We all want to be on the mountainside when He feeds the 5,000 miraculously. We want to be with Christ when He does that. But the only place He calls us to go is up Calvary. Nobody went with Him. He calls us to Calvary. He calls us to suffering. He calls us to be with Him in His resurrection and death and life again. That's, what, that's the courage that he's talking about here. Stand firm in the faith. Be men of courage. Be strong. Do everything in love. This would be a prayer as you were marching to Calvary. If you're going up the hill with Christ as Christ was carrying his cross, I believe his father was telling him, stand firm in the faith. Be men of courage. Be strong. And as you die, do everything in love. He forgave them while he hung there. He was the epitome of 1 Corinthians 16, 13, and 14. I have no idea what that slide is up there for. 
<clears throat> it's a nice slide. It means we know what it means now. Integrity equals faith over time. But while it sits up there, and I hope the next one is what I expect it to be, this idea of courage is not just something that uh, we talk about for Jesus. It is for us. We must find our own courage. You know, I, I want to tell you a personal story. Um, when I was uh, the senior American executive at Hyundai, my contentment was stirred because I felt that this contentment I had wrapped in Christ was being challenged where I was. And I felt like the only way I could continue to succeed was to compromise it in some way, to stop talking about Jesus. Even though I didn't have to give up my faith, I had to temper it. And it gave me, it stirred, it stirred that contentment. I wasn't, I wasn't content. And my wife and I were getting deeper and deeper into our maturity of Christ that will go on for all of our lives. Not that we were mature, but certainly more than we had been. And one night we were praying together and I said to my wife, Lorraine, do you think this is what God wants us to do with the rest of our lives? Is my tombstone going to say the best Hyundai car salesman in the whole world? I mean, it just didn't have a lot of appeal, you know. I thought, I think God's got something else for us to do. And God bless her. She was living in her dream house, okay? The one that she had wanted. She was, she's a blue-collar gal, went to 12 schools. Her dad couldn't keep a job, moved all over the country. From, she was Canadian, back to Arizona, back to Canada. I mean, he didn't, when he left, when he got mad and left, he didn't just meet, he didn't go across town. He went from... Toronto to Arizona to California back to Toronto. I mean, it was a schizophrenic family. And she had finally settled into what was a dream house for her and the lifestyle. And God bless her. We prayed, Lord, tell us what you'd like to do with the rest of our lives. And it wasn't long after that that we were in church. And there was a guest speaker, a missionary, recruiting and at the end of his presentation, he said, if there is someone here in this church who will go wherever Jesus calls him to go, I want you to stand up. As a Christian man, I immediately stood up, thinking, I honestly was thinking this, that the church was going to stand up. But they'd been listening to the sermon and knew that he was actually recruiting people to go to the mission field, okay? I was just answering his question, would you go wherever Jesus would ask you to go? And I thought, I mean, it was a very short thought as a Christian, how do I say no to that? How do I claim to be a Christian and not respond to that? So I stood up, and I stood up in church of about 600, and I looked around, and there's four other people standing up. And my wife wasn't one of them. She was sitting. <laughs> it was one of those, you, you really should have talked to me before you went to Bolivia things, you know? And, and so she's sitting there. And so I look around and I go, uh-oh, this is one of those times she's going to say you should have talked to me first. So I go to sit down. He says, no, no, stay up, stay up. I'm going, oh, gee. I, you know, so he keeps preaching. And he does another call. And three or four more people stand up. And in the second wave, my wife stood up alongside of me. And it turned out that she had been praying, and she told me a little later, 
she said, oh, oh boy, uh, Lord, my husband is uh, standing up, and he's going to go wherever you call him, and you know I'm not a bug person, and I don't like the jungle, you know, and uh, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you're not going to send me somewhere that I can't live. You're going to send me the limit, but not beyond my limit. You're going to give me that 1 Corinthians 10, 13 thing. Don't give me more than I can endure. And she wound up in Los Angeles. And believe me, that's at the limit of what she can possibly tolerate. (laughs) And so we stood up and we drove home that day in silence because we knew that we had made a vow before God. And I expected Monday a knock on the door, and the pastor coming, here's your tickets, you know. Nothing happened. And we started to pray. And I started to watch very carefully and listen for God's instruction. And a year went by. Nothing. Not a tingle. Crickets in my brain. That's all I could hear. There was nothing. And I thought, wow, that's, that's interesting. I really thought that some great change was coming in my life. And it did come. I was asked to join an IPO, a bigger opportunity the chief operating officer of a NASDAQ company. I thought, well, I I, I guess the answer is God wants me to be a businessman, a Christian in business. And believe me, he needs more Christians in business. He's making some wonderful pastors, but he really needs whatever you're doing for a living. You don't need to follow me. You know, do what you're doing. That's exactly where God has got to have a Christian man. So I took this job, and a year later, I was at a funeral of one of the presidents of our companies. We had consolidated seven companies. I had the job as chief operating officer. Seven presidents reported to me, or so they said. I don't, I don't know who reported. It was, it was a, just a cat-herding exercise. These guys never had a boss, and I was the chief operating officer of this, this new company. And one of them committed suicide, and I had been witnessing to him because he, had, he was a good man with a big hollow spot in his body. And he couldn't find contentment. He tried everything. He gave money away to, to everybody. And I'll tell you, it was a real shock to witness to him and think that this is what God had called me to do in business and to get a call in the middle of the night that he had killed himself. And I was at his funeral. And his funeral came down to 11 funny stories about him playing golf. There were 12 of us that were asked to speak, and his wife asked me to speak because she said, you're the only Christian I know. And so I had a message about Bob, and as I listened to these other nine people that spoke before me tell funny golf stories about him, it angered me because he was my friend, and I cared about him and loved about him. I loved him. And so I set what I was going to say aside and decided, I'm going to present the gospel of this group in this bar where they had the funeral of a, uh, uh, a club that he, he, he was part of. So I got up and just presented the gospel. And I'm not bashful. I'll present the gospel in a lot of places. It's been all over the world. But I want to tell you something. That group looked back at me like, what in the world are you talking about? It was the coldest. One guy came up and said, I'll bet that was embarrassing. And I said, you're kidding me. He said, what was embarrassing was hearing my friend's life boil down to golf stories. That's what was embarrassing. So I went back to the hotel, uh, a Best Western, which made it even worse in Canton, Ohio. I mean, you just can't do worse than that. (laughs) Gray, cold November day. A lot like it was here yesterday, as a matter of fact. And 
I went back there and I thought, well, I'll call my wife, she'll comfort me. She's not home. I went to bed. Perfect ending to a terrible day. And at 11.30, the phone rings. And it's my wife. She said, I have to read something to you. And I thought, oh, great, I've been subpoenaed again. I was getting subpoenaed a lot back then. <laughs> a deposition king right here, I want to tell you. What is it now? Now She said, no, wait a minute, I want to read this to you. And a headhunter had said they were looking for someone to run Johnny Erickson Tata's ministry. And this guy would send these to me periodically because I spoke around the country and I would get three or four from him a year if he was doing a Christian search quietly. And my wife read this to me. And I was thinking, while she's reading, I'm thinking, this can't wait till tomorrow. Just fax it to me. And when she was done with the seven or eight pages, she said, Doug, that's you. And the hair on my arm is standing up right now because when I married her, I wasn't a Christian. And for me to come from the non-Christian world and follow her, she brought me back to church, as I told you last night. And for her to read these exquisite eight pages and wake me up in the middle of the night and say to her husband, that's you, was humbling. I was crushed. It was truly, truly humbling. And so I thought, well, I will go meet Johnny Erickson Tata and check this paralyzed lady out. Don't do that. <laughs> I met with Johnny for two hours and decided that's what I want to do with my life. It's very dangerous to meet Johnny Erickson Tata. You're lucky she's not here. Who knows where you'd be on Monday, I'll tell you. <laughs> that led to a relationship with Christ that I couldn't imagine. Johnny Erickson Tata is not just a ministry lady. This is about disability. This is about learning the meaning of suffering. This is about preaching the Beyond Suffering course in seminaries. And as I look back and realize that I had asked God to show me a purpose for my son's life, that everything I had done in business was just on-the-job training for this. It suddenly became so unimportant, all those titles. The house that I worked so hard to get, that my wife was now very comfortable and satisfied because we were content in a townhouse in Woodland Hills, California, in L.A. No lawn, no backyard, just a townhouse, had downsized. But we had a contentment that we had never experienced before. And I have traveled around the world. I used to go to London and Paris, Monte Carlo. Now I go to the jungles of Guatemala and Haiti and Hudson, Africa. And it's extraordinary. I'm having adventures. I'm 68 years old. I'm traveling the world having adventures at 68 and can't wait to find out what happens next. Only Christ can do that. Had taken me from, and he said, I needed for you to learn about this management and I want you to apply it over here. Forget about all that. Meaningless. It didn't mean anything. This is what your life is all about. I am so fortunate to be one of those who has learned why he was born. I know why I was born. Working through your integrity, you can reaffirm to yourself why you were born. It will come out of Christ, out of confidence, 
and out of courage will come the absolute confidence that you will know why God put you on the earth. And all things will work together for the good, for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. I want to reiterate one point I made last night. God's promises, maybe this is because I had a hard time with this. All of God's promises are good for all of God's people all the time. It's not a lottery. I thought it was a lottery. How did that person get, get that one? How did I? Well, you've got to read the whole Bible and find out what the qualifications are. But all of His promises are good for all of His people in all situations all the time. They're available there for, for all of us. And so standing firm in the faith, being men of courage, be strong, do everything in love, has given me courage to go places I would not have gone before, that I would have been uncomfortable going before. Bill Richardson, you may know the name, the governor of New Mexico in the past, called Johnny and friends in August. I spoke to him and he said, What was confidential then, and I will not share everything with you, but I can share some of it. He said, I'm negotiating for the Christians that are being held in North Korea. And there's many, many people involved that I I can't, can't even tell you who they are. The Netherlands, Norway, Europe, all kinds of people, back channel. But there's one little piece that I haven't closed. I was speaking with the North Koreans and I said to them, what's it going to take? What's the final thing? We're almost there. We are almost there in the release. And he said, you know what they said? This is, this is incredible. Yeah, there is. Wheelchairs. We don't have any. We need wheelchairs. Nuclear secrets, I thought, is what they were going to say. You know, wheel- wheelchairs? <laughs> That's what he said. Wheelchairs. <laughs> Let me see what I can do. He had no idea he was going to get wheelchairs. He, he did some research and he just picked up the phone and called us. Would you be willing to take wheelchairs into North Korea? And here's why. And I heard myself saying, yes, I'll go. It's another one of those times when I should have talked to my wife first. She was... <clears throat> He was not happy, you know, and uh, usually I would run that by, but I heard myself saying yes. And uh, she, uh, she, of course, eventually uh, agreed. It was, I think it was after I left, but it, it was, it, she, she, she eventually, eventually agreed. And uh, I want to sh- show you one of the cheery people that I was, I, was, uh, I was with. Let's see. I think we, we are we missing a slide? I think that's why it's not there. Something is uh, askew. Is, have you got a picture back there of me with a uh, really cheery North Korean and the, the great leader? <laughs> you really want to see it, don't you? Well, I tell you what, there's 109 people in here, but uh, it's, it's not on the slide? Didn't, didn't come through? Well, somehow it didn't, it didn't transfer. Anyway, pass that back and around. This is my buddy in North Korea. He's looking at me. I'll describe the slide. He's looking at me like, I wonder if he tastes good. That's, that's the way he's... 
Yeah, I just take it. Yes, if I look at this picture, I'd say, that guy is looking, he's looking at me like, that guy looks tasty, you know? And uh, we landed in North Korea, first had to go to China, you can't get there from here, we had to go to China, get a visa, into Pyongyang in a small jet, we landed on a runway in Pyongyang, and I looked out the window on the right and left, there's no buildings, I'm just in the woods, I, I have no idea where I am, there's the woods on the right, and I, I thought we were in Pyongyang. And then an army truck comes down and surrounds the plane. That was the welcome to Pyongyang, official welcome to Pyongyang. And then they took our passports and tickets and confiscated them and cell phones. And that was uh, our beginning. And I could go on and tell you all about my trip to Pyongyang. And if we have lunch, I'll, I'll tell you more. It was uh, a harrowing experience, although they did their best to treat us well, although I was escorted around by the secret police every place I went, and two people wrote down everything I said. And they always have two people write down because their notes have to be turned in and their notes have to jive. And you're never allowed to be with one Korean at a time because you may turn them. So there's always two. If you order coffee, two people bring it to you. It was the most incredible experience that we've ever had. And we were there for a week. And we thought we were successful. We got a lot of agreement. And you know, I have to tell you, once we broke through the security, which was very, very thick, and talked to people that were working with people with a disability, I found a lot of the same compassion that you would find anywhere in the world because people are people. You had to go much deeper than you do in most societies, really deep. But I did find men of compassion that had asked the government for these chairs because there were zero. Well, actually, there were 10. Dennis Rodman gave them 10 sports chairs for a team that he would not stay to coach in basketball. And I saw them. I saw all 10 of them lined up. And they were very proud of that, that he had, but they weren't being used for anything. And so we have a container of wheelchairs going to Pyongyang, going back in March. And I hope you'll pray for us. I hope you'll pray for us. Because uh, in those talks, and we were, I have to be very careful not that we don't take credit. We were like 1% of this negotiation. But a week after we got back, that, that brother was released. And we were emotional about it. It, it was incredible. 20 years ago, would I, would I have gone there? I think I would have turned it down. But in that agreeing to go, what flashed through my mind faster than I can say it was me standing up in church and saying, if there's any man here that's willing to go wherever Christ would call him, I want you to stand up. I have taken that seriously. And God has been faithful to send me places that I wouldn't have missed for anything in the world that I probably never would have agreed to go to. I am not holding myself up as a man of integrity, but I try. And our faithfulness to God is the measure of integrity that is most important. The vows we make to Him are the most important of all and are the foundation upon which we can make vows to our wives and to our children. And, and to others. We can't start at the top and work our way down. We need to know that there is an absolute truth. 
we need to know that we can find contentment and confidence in Christ. We can wrap ourselves in that blanket. Our yes can be yes. Our no can be no. And then we have the foundation to go out and speak and do. And until we have that wrapped around us, we cannot be confident that the handshake we give over the fence is truly going to last. So be men of courage. God is watching. I can't wait to find out what the next slide is. <laughs> now, I've lost all confidence in my... Oh, integrity is leading like Jesus. There's a tall order, okay? Tomorrow, this is... Or tomorrow, I guess tonight, this is the topic we'll be, we'll be discussing. And so I won't do too much of that, but I did want to throw that in, that leading like Jesus, there is a process. Turns out uh, he was quite the leader and manager. And he knew when to form small groups. He knew when to give specific instructions. He knew when to give you a parable. And if you study those things, you find out he was a great CEO. After all, this is a guy with 12 volunteers that built a 2,000-year organization. I challenge men who are not Christians in business when I speak to them, even if you're not a Christian, don't you want to know what he said? I mean, he, he built a 2,000-year organization with 12 volunteers. You ought to find out his management techniques. They're pretty impressive. We'll talk about that tonight. Integrity forms your culture. And we, we, each, have our, we each have our own culture. Culture, culture of, of uh, the different Americas, if you will. In marketing terms, the secular world actually has, I can tell you from my experience and studies, seven Americas. The people in Portland are in America. The people in Texas are in America. The people in California are in America. There's seven areas that you market your product to in a different way in the secular world. And that's because, again, people are tribal. People that come to Texas come because they like it. You know, they, they, they like the way you think. You, you think a lot alike. People in Los Angeles, uh, they, they, think, they think a lot alike. Some of us are stuck there as missionaries, but that's okay. Someday I'll be here if you'll let me come back. Uh, and so we each have our own culture, but our culture where we live is the sum total of your culture. We get the government that we choose, no matter what culture we're in. Because the power of the people, regardless of whether you are in North Korea or here, and I understand how oppressive it is there, but it was oppressive here in 1776 too. You get the government eventually that your culture allows. And that culture is formed from the DNA of the family. That's where culture begins. Culture begins in the family. How the culture of your children and your wife and neighbors, that forms the culture that becomes the community. And the community, in your case, goes to church. And the church becomes the protector of that culture. That's its role. And it is a guide to strengthen the culture that you have taken to your family. Culture is more important to success than a mission or vision. When I talk to businessmen, 
their heads snap back on this. Mission or vision will tell you what you're going to do, but your culture will tell you whether or not you're going to be successful at it. You know what a perp walk is? I think I got a picture of one. I hope the picture's came. You see, this is a perp walk. Everybody know what a perp walk is? A perp walk is, God bless you people in Texas. <laughs> this is in New York uh, when you have committed fraud in your company, the Bear Stearns guys and the Enron people and all of that. I want to tell you something. Enron's vision and mission was great. People invested because they liked the vision and mission. Bear Stearns, great vision and mission. Why did they go to prison? Culture. Culture determines your success. The success of your family, success of your church, success of your community, your personal success, the success of a company. The mission statement can only be executed by men of contentment and integrity that can step forward and keep themselves from meeting this guy here with the gold badge. That's where this guy is not going to a good place in his $2,000 suit, I can tell you. But that was a cultural problem. An organization, this is um, Phil Cook. I don't know if you read Phil Cook or not. I read a lot of what Phil Cook has to say. He's a great Christian. An organization's culture sets the tone for everything else, and leaders are responsible for creating an organization's culture. He said, I don't care how great or noble your vision. I'm trying. If you don't have a capable and vibrant culture, very little will happen. If you're growing a church and it's not growing at the rate you want or that you think it should or you think there's something uncomfortable about its growth, check your culture. Check the culture of the church. Check the culture of your family. Check the culture of your company. A strong culture inspires people and launches greatness. That's Phil Cook. So integrity forms your culture. It'll form your family culture. It'll form your church culture and eventually your government's culture. You have a different government than the government I have in my state. And on a serious note, I'm not going to decide which one is better. I'm just going to tell you they're not the same. The people of your state have decided on your government's culture. People of my state have decided on their culture. It's up to each individual family. The role of the church plays a large part in your culture in this state. And to some degree, and I am sad to say to a less degree in my state, and there is a difference. There's a difference. And a lot of people would come, that from California would come and tell you that theirs is better. There's, I'm not going to say whose is better or whose is worse, but I can tell you that I think I'm talking to men of integrity and contentment and courage. So as we come to a close, here's some things for us to think about. And then, Pastor, I think you're coming forward. We're going to have groups. No, you're not coming forward. You're what? We're just going to go to groups. Okay. Uh, here's some things. I'll leave these up. Who are, uh, and I think you've got some things on your sheet, but you can refer back to these as well. Who are my mentors, spiritually and in life? I'll bet if you look at who your mentors are, they're men of integrity. They're men that you look up to because of their integrity, not because of their success, not because of how much they own 
but because of their integrity. How much does their integrity figure into their exalted position in my eyes? And what standards or truth do I use to shape my personal integrity? I think there might be an, a couple more. Let me take a look. Yeah, what is my decision-making process in matters of integrity? How much does integrity play in others' view of me? There's a, there's a big one. And what's my number one quality? What examples did Jesus give us in reflection, in reflecting his integrity to his disciples and others, to his friends, and to his, even more importantly, to his enemies. So those are some thoughts that uh, I wanted to share with you, and I hope that as men of integrity that uh, you'll take some of these processes to heart so that we have a way of processing the integrity that we've been working on. It's what, what is the foundation? What is the structure of our integrity? What can we fall back on? I hope that this has been helpful to you. So as we break into groups, if I could close in prayer, and then we'll see what each of you has to say as well. Father, thank you for surrounding us this weekend with men of integrity. Thank you for your presence. We pray that you would infuse us with the integrity of Christ. We pray, Lord, that that integrity of Christ would come through our faith in you, in, in, in knowing who you are, that you would give us the contentment and the confidence to be courageous men of integrity. I ask you to bless every soul that is here. Bind us together this weekend. Begin relationships that are mentorships and perhaps even new small groups of friends. I ask you to bless us, bless us indeed. And keep us from evil that we would not do harm. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you, men. Enjoy the rest of your day.